in the beginning of Parshas Vayishlach, Yaakov is coming back from Haran with his family. If you calculate the time that he was away, he left 34 years ago, and now he's finally returning to the land of his birth, Eretz Kena'an, the land of Canaan, which would later be called Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel. And this actually brings us back to when he left Beersheba in Eretz Canaan, the city that he grew up in, the city where his parents Yitzchak and Rivka lived, and where he grew up with his twin brother Esav. It took him 34 years to return because he worked seven years to marry Rachel, Rachel. Then he married her sister Leah instead and had to work another seven years for Rachel, with the first seven apparently applying retroactively to Leah. And then, since he was working for his father-in-law, Lavan, for those 14 years, he hadn't made any of his own fortune. So then he worked six years, an additional six years, for Lavan, and he was paid a wage. And that's how he amassed his own wealth. And after 20 years, he was ready to go back. And we'll talk about how that came about in a moment. But first, we have to realize that according to the calculation that Rashi provided in the end of Parshish Vayetze, Yaakov spent 14 years in the academy, in the yeshiva of Aver, one of the descendants of Noach, of Noah, to prepare himself for the challenges that he would face after he left his parents' home and went into the hostile environment of the house of Lavan. Why did Yaakov originally leave, and why is he now coming back? So the overt reason, the public reason, was that he had to get married, and he wanted to marry within his family. So he went to Haran, the place where his mother, Rivka Rebecca, was from, and the idea was is that he would marry one of her nieces, one of his first cousins, one of Lavan's daughters. And that's, of course, what he did. But the original impetus for him leaving was to escape the wrath of his brother Esau because Yaakov had impersonated his brother and received Yitzchak, Isaac's blessings that were originally intended for his brother Esav, and his mother Rivka told him that she knows Esav wants to kill him because he's so angry about this, therefore he should leave. She says to him, So now, my son, heed my voice and arise. Flee to my brother Lavan, Laban, to Haran, and remain with him a short while until your brother's wrath subsides, until your brother's anger against you subsides and he forgets what you have what you have done to him, then I will send and bring you from there. So the idea for him to leave originally was for Mifka. And the goal was that he stays there a short time, undefined what that short time is. And then once Asaph calms down, Yaakov will be able to come back home. That was the original plan. But now it's 34 years later, what actually played out? Was this 34 years, the short while that she originally intended? It seems like a long time. Now, they did live much longer lives, and Yaakov was already at an advanced age before he even considered getting married. So we don't really know. What we do know is that even though these 43 years had elapsed, Esau's anger does not seem to have subsided. We're going to see soon that Yaakov quickly finds out that Esau is coming toward him with an army of 400 men, and his intention seems to be what he originally intended to do, and his plan seems to be to kill Yaakov as he originally intended. First of all, a quick lesson from this. This is a reminder of how hard it is sometimes to let go of resentment. 34 years, Esau thought about and planned to kill Yaakov, and he appears to have heard that he's on his way back, and this is the first opportunity. He rounds up 400 men, and he's going for it. This is a topic that deserves its own treatment, but in general, harboring resentment does only one thing. It hurts the person who's harboring that resentment, because it 
saps our energy and it creates negativity that we don't need and the energy we could use for doing positive things. My resentment doesn't affect the person that I'm upset with, Kihuzeklau, in any way, shape, or form. It only affects me. The extent and the staying power of Asov's resentment is a reminder for us of how unhelpful, harmful, and negative resentment actually is. Is a reminder for us to think about if we have any resentments and to address them and deal with them and move on from them before 34 years elapse. The other point to make about this, and this is in terms of the continuity of the Torah's narrative, this has really two facets. We just mentioned how it seems that according to Rivka's prediction, or at least her hope, Asav should have calmed down by now, but he didn't. The, the other point to make about her original instruction to Yaakov was that she said she's going to send for him and bring him back once the anger subsides. So in the end of last week's Parsha of Ayetze, Yaakov doesn't come back because of a message that he receives from Rivka. He comes back because, because God appears to him and tells him to. So that doesn't seem to have gone according to plan either. But these things really do fit together. It seems like what happened was Rivka saw that Asav, in spite of the fact that so many years had elapsed, was not calmed down. He still wanted to murder his brother. And therefore, she never sent for Yaakov. Even though it was so long, he never got that message because she never sent it because she couldn't send it. Maybe that's what happened. Eventually, he just came back because God told him to. When Yaakov arrives finally in Canaan, with his family, with his entourage, with his new livestock. The Torah says he sends malachim before him. Malachim usually means angels. It could also mean messengers. Their objective is to go ahead to Esav with a very deferential message. To my Lord, to Esav, so said your servant Jacob, Yaakov, I have I have sojourned with Lavan and have lingered until now. I have acquired oxen and donkeys, flocks, servants, and maidservants, and I am sending to tell my Lord to find favor in your eyes. He is super friendly to Esav with this message. How are we supposed to understand this term malachim? There are actually two opinions in Medrash Rabbah. One opinion is that Yaakov had supernatural powers to actually send angels. The other opinion says that no, they were regular people who he sent, and the Torah is just calling them malachim. But the question is, according to this second opinion, that he sent regular messengers to his brother Esav, why would the Torah use this unusual word malachim? Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, who lived from 1895 to 1986, and was a great halachic decisor and Talmudist, explains that the greatest people make no distinction between natural and supernatural, between regular everyday occurrences and miracles. And the reason is not because they don't appreciate miracles or think a miracle or think miracles are special. The reason is, is because they see the natural, they see the everyday as miraculous. They see the natural as supernatural. They see everything as supernatural. They see the gift of life as miraculous. They see the beauty of the world as miraculous. They don't look at the people they encounter and the challenges they face as meaningless happenstance. They look at it as purposeful opportunities. That's why, says Rabbi Feinstein, even though Yaakov sent regular people, it calls them malachim because he looks at regular people like angels. He looks at people, at regular everyday people, as having a specialness of angels. That's what this term alludes to. And this is what Nachmanides Ramban, Rabbi Nachman ben Moshe, who lived 
from 1194 to 1270 and spent most of a, spent most of his life in Spain and had to leave to move to the land of Israel at the end of his life in his commentary on the Torah at the end of Parsha's bow and he's talking about the miracles of the Exodus and he says the point of all those miracles is that the big miracles teach you about the small miracles, meaning the unusual, supernatural, spectacular miracles show you that you should look at the world around you that you see every day as miraculous as well. He makes a strong statement. A person has no share in the Torah of Moshe, our teacher, until we believe that everything that happens to us it's all miracles. There's no nature. There's no regular way the world operates. Whether it's talking about us as a nation, whether it's talking about us as a community, whether it's talking about us as individuals, it's all miraculous. It's not happenstance. This is such an inspiring idea to me because a lot of times people think that to up their game in Yiddishkeit, to be a to become a better Jew. They have to focus on rituals. And rituals, of course, are a very important part of Judaism. But rituals are the basics. The real work about becoming a better Jew, becoming a better person, is really in two areas which are both limitless. Number one, which we're not focusing on right now, is our interactions with other people. And number two is developing a Jewish mind. Looking at the world through Torah glasses seeing the miracle in the day-to-day, seeing how amazing it is to be alive. If you've ever listened to Gary V on YouTube, he makes these statements. I don't know where he gets these type of statistics. He says something like, it's one in a trillion chance that you're born a human being. I just located the actual clip from Gary V. You could just Google the odds of being born a human being or something like that. Here it is. Gratitude is an unlocker. My man, just 400 trillion to one. I just want everybody to hear this. This is the reason I'm happy 24-7, 365 for the rest of my life. 400 trillion to one. The odds of becoming a human being. You might not like the human being situation you ended up in. I mean, 400 trillion to one. You're more likely to win the lottery of over $100 million nine times in your life than being Rick. And that's why I tell people it's a privilege to be here. When I think about growing as a Jew, that's where it is. It's internalizing that sense of amazement at the universe, at ourselves, at at human beings, at the world, and it's being able to engender a sense of gratitude that God made us part of this. And that's limitless. And that was that was part of the greatness of Avraham, Sarah, Yitzchak, Rivka, Yaakov, Leah, Rachel, is the way they saw the world. And that is reflected in the language the Torah uses to, to describe Yaakov's messengers. It doesn't just say they were messengers or people. It just refers to them as angels because in Yaakov's world, there were no difference between the two. They were both miraculous. Yaakov's sending messengers to Esau to feel him out, to see what his intentions are, to see if he's still angry with him, to assess what his threat level is, is actually the first of a three-pronged approach, the first prong of a three-pronged approach with which he addresses the threat of Esau. The first one is Doron, which is gifts, and we're going to see that Yaakov sends lavish, expensive gifts all kinds of livestock brought to Esau in front of Yaakov's group and in, in front of Yaakov's caravan. He sends two different sets of gifts, each one 
with deferential messages, calling Ace of his master, etc. A lot of people translate this as bribery, but I think a more accurate translation or explanation of this technique, what Rashi calls Doron, is actually diplomacy. And that's what Yaakov started out with first. He just sent him a message. There was no gift involved. It's the idea of reaching out in a peaceful way. The second arm of the approach is tefillah, is prayer. And we're going to see in a moment that Yaakov prays and he asked God for help to protect him from Esav and his murderous intentions. The third aspect of a strategy is Milchama. He prepares himself for war. He splits up the camp. When his family actually gets to Esav, he passes in front of them and, and gets into a defensive position in case he'll have to ward off an attack. He covered his bases in several different ways. He didn't just go in there ready to fight Esav. He used diplomacy. If that didn't work... He was prepared to fight. And the the backdrop of, I would say, both of those approaches of diplomacy and readiness for battle, which was his prayer. In fact, throughout history, the rabbis have looked and Jewish leaders have looked at this parsha, at this confrontation with Esau as a blueprint of how to interact with foreign governments and powers which the Jewish people interacted with. It says in Midrash Rabbah, Rabbi Yonason, who lived in the 3rd century in Roman-dominated Palestine, said, One who wishes to know which tactics to use when dealing with a non-Jewish king or governor should study closely the Torah portion dealing with the meeting of Yaakov and Esav. I'd like to share with you two different contemporary applications of what we can learn from this encounter. One of them is what we sadly and tragically face is the uptick in episodes and incidents of anti-Semitic violence and bloodshed, like we saw earlier this week in the kosher market in Jersey City, New Jersey, and really in the, in the last year plus, the last 13 months in the United States. How do we react to that? This is one template that can give us some hadracha, give us some guidance of what we should do. And the first thing is diplomacy. Diplomacy in this case would be combating anti-Semitism before it starts, nipping in the bud, neutralizing anti-Semitism. And there are a lot of organizations that are doing this work. We have to explore techniques and methods of how to go about this. A lot of it's education. I know here in Arizona, there are people that go to schools talking about the Holocaust, and it's really the first time that a lot of the students in these high schools have ever seen a Jew in real life. And it's the first step is fighting this with diplomacy. And the other two steps, are tefillah and milchama, prayer and war. Now, as far as milchama goes, it's definitely like the Israeli army is called the IDF. It's a defensive war. In my mind, that means being more mindful of security, taking taking these threats more seriously, not going overboard, but at the very least using common sense to secure our organizations, our institutions, our schools, our shuls. There are some people that say, God will take care of us, and God will take care of us, but we see from Yaakov that we don't rely on that. Yaakov did a lot of strategic planning to prepare himself in case he would have to fight this battle with Esau, and we're certainly no better than Yaakov. And the third aspect of this is tefillah, and of course as Jews, our response to any crisis and any challenge should be to increase our tefillah, to daven, to pray. But there's another aspect to this. In Tehillim, in the book of Psalms, in Kapitel 
Kuf Chaf Zion 127. It says, if God will not build the house, they that build it labor in vain. Meaning, people can be the best architects, they could be the best builders, best contractors they could be using, state-of-the-art tools, and expensive materials. But if God doesn't want that house built, it's not going to be built. All human efforts need God's assistance. And that verse continues, if God will not guard the city, the watchman waketh but in vain, meaning the watchman guards in vain. And that's to say that we can be so secure in our plans of how we're going to keep bad guys out of our spaces and we're going to have cameras and we're going to have off-duty police officers. We're going to have radios, whatever it is. We're going to protect ourselves, leaving God totally out of the picture. No, the watchman waketh but in vain. Your watchman, without God's help, the watchmen are ineffective. So to parallel Yaakov's efforts, we have what's called in Hebrew the hishtadlis, the making an effort to make things better on our own, whether it's through diplomacy and education, whether it's through security preparedness. But both of those techniques are balanced by tefillah, balanced by the spiritual aspect rather than the physical aspect, which teaches us that we're in God's hands and we need his help. While we we need to make an honest and the most effective effort we can to protect ourselves and to solve the issues, we have to put our eyes heavenward and hope that he helps us with our efforts. The other interesting application of Yaakov's three-pronged technique here, diplomacy, prayer, and milchama war, addresses a question that I've brought up many times, and that is, how does a how does a Jew in the modern world, or really any time in history for that matter, but especially in the modern world, how do we approach secular culture? How do we live as a Jew in a world that is mostly not a Jewish world, which has a lot of wisdom, knowledge, and culture to contribute? That could potentially harm us, but it could enhance our lives. Rabbi Yitzhak Breidowitz, who was a congregational rabbi in suburban Washington, D.C. for many years and now teaches in yeshiva in Israel, he addresses this question by applying Yaakov's three techniques to our encounter with secular culture. And he says that the doron, the gift-giving or the diplomacy, represents our embracing secular culture. Because after all, the rabbis say, Chachma bagoyim tamin, there is wisdom and insight among the nations of the world that we can benefit from. And that was Rabbi Shamshin Frohl Hirsch, who was a rabbi in Frankfurt in 19th century Germany. That was his idea of Torim Derech Eretz, of using the best aspects of secular culture and knowledge to enhance our lives and to enhance our experience of Judaism. And on the other hand, there's an approach of milchama, of battle, of war, which is the opposite approach, which tells us to reject modern culture, because there's so much in society that is degenerate, corrupt, and corrosive. So that has to be rejected. This is what we learn from Yaakov. Taking either extreme position is wrong. Taking a position of complete acceptance and a kind of head over heels approach to modern culture is a big mistake. But on the other hand, taking a reject all approach to modern culture is also not healthy. And like many things, the the truth lies in the middle. We have to accept, we have to embrace the positive, the inspiring, the beneficial, the wise parts of secular culture, the technology, 
but we have to reject the negative, the corrosive, the toxic, and the evil parts of secular culture. It's much easier to accept everything or reject everything. It's much harder to go down the middle. The Kutzker Rebbe, who was a 19th century Hasidic leader, well known for his pithy statements, said that when you walk in the middle of the street, you face a double danger because you can get hit by traffic coming from either direction. And that is certainly true for anyone who takes a balanced centrist position. They're not good enough for one side and they're not good enough for the other. It's lonely. And that's why, says Rabbi Breidowitz, tefillah, the third aspect of Yaakov's approach, prayer, is so important in this challenge of accepting and rejecting different parts of general culture, because it's so difficult, we need siyata deshmaya, we need the assistance of heaven to be able to navigate in an effective and healthy way how to constantly gauge our relationship with the world around us. The messengers come back and say that Yaakov is approaching with an army of 400 men, and Yaakov's reaction is very interesting. It says, Vayira Yaakov me'od lo. Yaakov was very frightened, and it pained him, it distressed him. Now, it's interesting. Something doesn't seem to fit here. Yaakov said, Im Lavan Garti, when in his message to Esau, he said, I lived with Lavan. And Rashi explains that Garti, the word I lived, has the same gematria, the numerical value, as the number of mitzvot, the number of commandments, 613. So he was hinting to Esau that although he lived with Lavan for 20 years, he was still faithful to the way of life that he learned in their parents' home. He was not corrupted by Lavan. So it's very surprising. Why would Yaakov be afraid? God told him explicitly in Parshish Vayetze, when he had the dream, that he would protect him and he'd bring him back to the land of his of his fathers. And he was faithful to all the commandments. So he, he lacked no merit. And Esav, on the contrary, was an evil person, a murderer, as the rabbis explain. So it's very shocking why Yaakov would be so terrified of his brother. Medrash Rabbah addresses this. Amar Yaakov, Yaakov said to himself, this is what he said to himself, Kol hashanim halalu, hu yoshev b'eretz Yisrael. All these years, Esav, my brother, has been living in the land of Israel. Tomer Yisrael. He was concerned that in spite of his own merits and Esav's wickedness, he has one, Esav still has one merit over Yaakov. And this one merit may potentially outweigh all of Yaakov's merit. And that was Esav's living in the land of Israel for these past 34 years, when, Yitzhak, when, when Yaakov himself was not. Rabbi Shmuel Mulliver, who lived from 1824 to 1898, he was one of the leading rabbis in Russia in the second half of the 19th century. He was what we may call a proto-Zionist. He was a leader in the movement called Chovevei Tzion, the Lovers of Zion, which was a precursor to the Zionist movement. He became a rabbi at Voluzhin, the famous Voluzhin Yeshiva, at the age of 19. He was a businessman for five years, and then he was hired as a congregational rabbi, and he held very important rabbinic posts through the rest of his life and consistently supported settlement in the land of Israel. So he points out something that sounds like one of Rabbi Cook's teachings. He said that what you can understand from here is that if we have Jews, even if they 
might not be the most religious Jews. They might not be the most Torah-educated Jews. But if they're willing to settle Eretz Yisrael, they're, they're willing to build the land of Israel, God still loves them. And he quotes a remarkable line from Yalkut Shimoni, which is another Midrasha collection, that says, Halavai v'hayu b'nei ami Yisrael, The Holy One, blessed be he, says that if only my children, the people of Israel, were in the land of Israel, even though they defile it, that's better than them being outside the land of Israel. He wants, God wants Jews in his land. The question is, why this one mitzvah would outweigh all others? Perhaps this fits with the position of Ramban, Nachmanides, that the mitzvos that we fulfill outside the land of Israel are not authentic mitzvos, so to speak. They're just practice for when we come, really mitzvos don't apply outside of the land of Israel. We just do them outside of Israel to practice for when we do go back to Israel. And that's where mitzvos really take effect. And that's where they really mean something. As I mentioned a few moments ago, Yaakov it says, was very afraid, and he was distressed. So it seems redundant. What are these two different aspects? Why is he afraid and distressed? Rashi explains he's afraid Shema Yeharig, he's afraid he'll get killed, and he's distressed if he will have to kill anyone else. And the idea is, is that Yaakov is afraid of going to war because he doesn't want to get killed and he doesn't want to kill anyone else. This is the Jewish approach to war. Yaakov is establishing the Jewish approach to war. This was echoed many, many, many years later. The famous line of Golda Meir, who remarked after one of Israel's wars with its Arab neighbors, that we can forgive the Arabs for killing our sons, but we can never forgive them for making our sons killers. Let's not forget what we're talking about here. We're talking about killing defensively. The Gemara says, if someone comes to take your life, hashkem vahargo, you're allowed to or required to attack that person and take their life so they won't take your life. So if Yaakov would have been killing anybody in this context, it would have been 100% justified. This is not anything close to murder. But still, Yaakov did not want to do that. Now, how far does this go? How far does this reluctance to kill, even when it's totally justified, how long, how how far do we take that? Earlier this week, one of my rabbinic colleagues shared that someone had asked him a question. He just ran over a squirrel. It ran out in front of his car, and he killed it. He wasn't able to break, he wasn't able to move, and the squirrel had no chance. He asked his rabbi, do I have to do repentance? Do I have to do tshuva? This set off an amazing conversation among the rabbis of this group. So one of them said his driving instructor, apparently a Muncie driving instructor that taught thousands of Jewish young men and women how to drive, his rule was do not brake for squirrels because you'll get into the habit of slamming on the brakes, there'll be ice in the road, you'll swerve, and you could hit a pedestrian. So if you just get in the habit of actually running over the squirrel and not even trying not to run over the squirrel, you may save a life. Meaning, even though we don't want to kill innocent beings, even animals, if it means the safety of other human beings, then it has to be done. A few minutes later, another rabbi responded with a totally different dimension. And he quoted Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, who I mentioned earlier, who writes in a tshuva, in a written halachic decision, it's in the second volume of Choshen Mishpat, number 47, Mem Zion, that even when one, and this, he, Rabbi Moshe talks about this at length, even when one is permitted or obligated to get rid of a dangerous insect, 
First of all, you should try to shoo it away to a place where it can no longer harm anyone or kill it in some indirect way. Because killing any of God's creatures, even if it's a mitzvah to do so, meaning it's a mitzvah to protect your life if there's some type of harmful insect that might sting you or protect you from from pain, killing even something as seemingly insignificant as an insect in those circumstances leaves an imprint of achzarius, of cruelness on a person's character and soul. And we find that God specifically blesses people who carry out such killings in order to counteract the cruelty of the act that they committed, even though it was proper. But even according to this, that's only if possible. And this this doesn't contradict the idea of the necessity to run over the squirrel. Sometimes the killing has to be done, but whenever possible, it's better not to kill even an animal or an insect because of the, def- the effect it has on us. So therefore, no tshuva, since nothing wrong was done here, in fact, it, it was probably the right thing to do to run over the squirrel, no tshuva is required. Although this source certainly points in the direction of our reluctance to kill even animals, even when it's justified, there is obviously a gigantic difference between killing animals when necessary and killing human beings when necessary. But this certainly does illustrate the point that any killing, even if it's absolutely required, and even if it's not a human being that's being killed, taking any life is something that must contradict our moral sensibilities on some level. And I realize this has implications in terms of vegetarianism, and that is a conversation for another time. In Yaakov's prayer, he asks God to save him, Miyad Achi, Miyad Esav. Save me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esav. So we're faced with another redundancy here. Rashi has one approach to explain it. I'd like to share with you an explanation of Rav Yosef Dov Soloveitchik of Brisk, known as the Beis Halevi. He was born in 1820 and died in 1892. He's the great-grandfather of Rav Soloveitchik, and he's the real founder of the Brisk rabbinic dynasty. He says that Miyad Esav, that when Yaakov asks God to save him from the hand of Esav, that's one paradigm of anti-Semite. And Miad Achi, from the hand of my brother, is Yaakov asking for God to save him from the hand of a different type of anti-Semite. The hand of Esav anti-Semite is the overt anti-Semite. He tells Jews that he hates them, and he makes no secret of it. And the other type is, from the hand of my brother, is the threat posed to us by anti-Semites that pose as friends but are actually enemies, because they'll eventually undermine Judaism and our connection to Torah. So really, in this case, the enemies that poses, that appear to us as friends are the more pernicious enemies. Those are the more dangerous enemies. The Lubavitcher Rebbe once commented that it's easier to be a Jew in Siberia than it is to be a Jew in suburbia, because when you're in Siberia, you know everybody hates you, and therefore you reject their influence. However, the challenge of a Jew in suburbia is that everyone befriends him, and the danger of assimilation is real.